The question we said was, what, um, what is it that mum and dad want for me? Or if you were to get them to have the sentence, what would it be? What mum and dad want for me is blank, 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 blank. Okay? That's where we started last week, and that's where we need to carry on this week. But how would your kids or your family answer that question? What mum and dad want for me is blank, 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 whatever it is. Or, put it this way, uh, let's say you've got friends and neighbours, work colleagues, people who you bump into at the school gate. How would, you, how, how would they answer the, this question? Um, what is it that you, X, want from your life? Blank, 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 blank. You know, this is what they want from their life. This is what is at the centre. This is what makes them tick. Dum, 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 dum. Whatever it is. I suppose it's the question of what are you really pursuing in life? What are your ultimate values? What makes you get up in the morning? Or for a child to say, I know what gets mum up in the morning. And it's not just the alarm clock. What is it that mum builds her life upon? What is it that dad says truly satisfies? And it's so frightening what they might say. I haven't actually tested. In fact, one of you needs to be bold enough to go and ask my kids this in a bit. You know, what is it that mum and dad want from me? I dread to think. I wonder whether the answer would come out like this. Perhaps it would be, well, they want me to behave. They want me to do good in school. They want me to have fun. They want me to be able to swim fast, run fast. They want me to look good when other people are around back to behaving, doesn't it? I wonder what they would say. They'd say, well, what does TV want for you? What do they say is the good life where, where life is found? Perhaps TV would say, well, they want you to... TV wants you to be able to sing well so you can get on the X Factor. They want you to be pretty, have the right dress size. They want you to be able to kick a ball very straight. They want you to be rich. They want you to be famous. Celebrity is where it's at. That's where real life is. That's, that's where, where, where it's worth investing yourself. And the scriptures are going to say to us today, is that the best you can do? Is that the very best we can come up with? Behave, do good in school, have fun, be pretty, um, sing well, kick a ball straight, be rich, be famous, have celebrity. Is that the limit, says God's word, of your imagination? Is that as high and as broad as your horizons are prepared to go? So often we're so easily pleased. The scriptures would just shout at us today, stop aiming so low. Stop having such low ambitions for yourself, for your life, and particularly for the precious little lives that God has given you to look after. And last week we came face to face with the fact that God has a plan for our kids' life, just like he has a plan for our life. Not as in, go down there, turn left, follow that until you get to the end, at the crossroads, turn right, round the right. And they're not like, we're not talking about the, the little details, but the big picture plan that the, the, the direction as to where he wants us to go and what God wants for my kids is an awful lot better than whatever I want for my kids. Because what God wants for my kids is that they would pursue life in the one who made life. The one who spoke worlds into being. What God wants for my kids is that they would taste the ultimate value, his love and his grace. That they would get up in the morning to enjoy his grace above all other things. That they would build their lives upon him and his faithfulness and his abundance. That they can taste the only thing who, who when you pursue him will truly satisfy you and when you fail him will fully forgive you. That is the only thing that we can set our hearts on. You set your hearts on anything else and it will never ultimately satisfy and if you ruin it and you don't get it You'll feel broken and worthless. It won't forgive you. But God will. In Jeremiah, I've I've used this with you before, in Jeremiah chapter 2 there's this wonderful picture of of a a bubbling brook, a a, a spring that is just bubbling out life. It's gushing, life-giving, fresh, revitalising water coming out. It's the sort of thing, and, and it's in the middle of a village where they're all absolutely parched, but all the villagers have snubbed it. It's there and it's coming out in absolute abundance, gushing. There's plenty for everybody. And they're all sort of fighting over this little chapped pot. That they've got chapped lips. They're, sort of, they're all bedraggled and, uh, and well, the mouths are parched. It's scraped, this little pot. It looks ugly. Um, 
And here they are, they're just sort of like trying to lick the last little bit of infected liquid out of this thing, standing next to this whopping great spring. And Jeremiah said, that is the picture of every human being who's ever lived. We're going to cracked and broken systems rather than the abundant life of God's, oh, it's just his abundance of grace that comes by his spirit when we meet him in the Lord Jesus. And so, we're too easily pleased. I quote C.S. Lewis to you almost every week, because I think in many ways he's a genius. Uh, this is my favourite C.S. Lewis quote ever. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition, when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slums, because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the seaside. We are far too easily pleased. And my guess as I start speaking to you today, it's not so much that this is just for your kids, this is for you, isn't it? Because I know that I'm speaking to a room full of people and myself who have been torn this week. Haven't you? On the one hand, some of you know the grace of God and you wanted to try and build your life upon that and stay, take that standing. And you know deep down in your heart that's the thing that will only satisfy, but you've been drawn to just about every cracked, broken pot. If I just... If those things that have dominated your thinking and have got you up either worrying or feeling happy about the day, it is those things that as you put your head on the pillow at night dominate your thinking, not the prayers of the, and praise of the wonderful God who's been there. And so we're all absolutely torn people. Why is that? Well, the answer came we found last week when we started to look at what our kids were actually like. Remember we were asking what our kids were like and what they needed? And the answer comes back for exactly us. We heard all about it last week, so let me just do a quick recap of points one and two from last week. And it's point three that we didn't get on to. So point one, who are our kids? More to the point, who are we? What are we like? Why do we find it so difficult to focus on and glory in the wonder of God's spring and we go to broken systems so quick? Answer? Who were our kids? Well, you try and tell me. Can you remember who were our kids? We put it in a very unpolitically correct way. What do we say our kids were? Sorry? God hates us. Brilliant. So what we come home with is a beautiful helpless, adorable sinner. And the inclination of their heart is not neutral. They are radically self-centred. We were up talking about this just this week. Little Lucy, she's eight and a half months. Boy, has she got a temper. You can be doing the very best thing for her. She's not complaining because she's not getting what she wants. Uh, as in, sorry, what she needs. She's complaining because she's not getting what she wants. Which is not just that you feed her, but you feed her in exactly the same way, in exactly the, uh, the right way, in exactly the right amounts, in just the way she wants. Oh, she's profoundly self-centred. We're made to set our hearts on things, and when we stop setting our hearts on the wonder of God and his grace, when we turn and belittle him by turning to an empty pot, our hearts got broken and wrecked, and in trying to find life apart from God, we ended up being corrupted. We settle for so much less. So that immediately tells us that if our kids are beautiful, helpless, lovely sinners who hate God, then their problem is not their behaviour. We learned that last week, didn't we? And so often our natural instinct is, what is our job as parents? Teach them to behave shape and mould their behaviour. It's deeper than that. It's not their outward behaviour that's the real problem, although that's the problem that we feel. It's the thing that pricks us and, ow, we don't like it. The real problem is what their heart is set on. That they're God-haters and they belittle God. And so we learned last week, didn't we, that a change of behaviour that does not proceed from a change of heart is not commendable, it's condemnable. If it's just change at the level of behaviour, and especially if they succeed in this, we fail to point our kids to their helplessness apart from God, and we direct them away from the gospel of the Lord Jesus. We create little Pharisees who have cleaned up the outside, but inside they're just filthy. So who are our kids? They are helpless, valuable little sinners who give their hearts to everything but the Lord. And you remember that from the end of Psalm 78. Where did they get it from? 
They would not be like their forefathers, i.e. their parents, a stubborn and rebellious generation whose hearts were not loyal to God, whose spirits were not faithful to him. So we cannot look down on our kids and go, you're wicked, you're terrible, because they learnt it from us. They only do what we do. Which means we need the same solution that they need as well, don't we? And that was what we looked at secondly last week. What they need, okay? What they need is, and that's in Psalm 78 again, parents who under God, with his grace powering them, bring them up to know, to run their lives, to build their eternities upon the God they have always been unknowingly searching for, but actually outwardly hate. Do you get that? Good luck. You realise as a parent you're being asked to do the job that is utterly impossible to turn God-haters into lovers of God. You cannot do that, says the Scriptures. Only God, in the power of His grace, can draw somebody, can, can deal with a broken heart on the inside. But that does not mean He does not, he does not mean, use means. He uses the means. So the model of Scripture is that the way that God will do a heart transformation in the life of a child, generally speaking is through the right, godly, prayerful involvement of a parent in that life. Is it a promise? If you deliver, then you will out-pop, turn the handle, crank a believing child? No. Because that's God's department to win. But does he, generally speaking, use parents back the way he wants to work? So will there be in this room people who have come to faith, even though they weren't brought up in a Christian home, that would be me. And some of you as well here. I came to faith. I had a loving home, wonderful parents, but was I brought up in a Christian home? With gospel values? No. But the Lord's gracious. Some of you have the privilege of having parents who brought you up in a Christian gospel-centered home and the fact is they did everything wrong and yet you're still here believing. But some of you had the privilege of being brought up in a gospel Christian home where your parents did everything right and you are believing and yet your brothers and sisters aren't. So this isn't an easy formula. This is a painful thing. It needs to be done with a sense of utter dependence upon God. But it should be done with a measure of confidence in God. Because he said, this is the means that he likes to use and will, generally speaking, use. So what is our job? What do they need? They need parents who, under God, with his grace, bring them to know, help them to see the glory and the wonder of Jesus, so that they won't just pray a prayer and say yes and go along to a youth camp, but will build their life on him as disciples of the Lord Jesus, enjoying his grace and serving his purpose. We need to help them see their hearts and we need to help them see the Lord. And if, let me just join up the dots for you and say, hold on, I'm not a parent, what does that mean? But what I've just described, what they need, is exactly what you need from people within the church family and what you need to be for other people in the church family and beyond. Doesn't your next door neighbour who does not know Jesus know exactly, need exactly the same? Someone who under God, with his grace, will bring them to see and know the wonder of who Jesus is. Isn't that what our estate needs? You see, what a kid needs from a parent is what you've got to give to somebody. So I hope you're listening. Because this is for you too. So thirdly and finally, and this is what's going to take me next, what, 15, 20 minutes, is how do we do it? Okay, Steve, last week you spent 40 minutes telling us that we've got an important job to do under God. Now, how do we do it? Okay, let me just remind you what I said to start off. Well, what is the big picture where we go? I, I quoted to you a Puritan. Sometimes the Puritans get a really bad, uh, bad press. I know they wore silly black hats that look like upside-down plant pots, but once you put that aside... The Puritans were geniuses because they were asking the question, how do we live every area of our life under the grace and the lordship of the Lord? One of them was a guy called Thomas Chalmers and he wrote an essay which is quite dense but the, tire is, uh, the title is awful. They knew how to put sermon titles back there. Expulsive the Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And he said this, the best way to overcome the world is not by morality or self-discipline, Christians overcome the world by seeing the beauty and excellence of Christ. Do you get that? Live like that. How do you feel when somebody says that to you? Deflated. Look at him. 
Isn't he wonderful? How do you feel? To walk on air. So what is our role and responsibility? It is to so show Jesus and the manifold wisdom of his, uh, and the abundance of his grace, his, his kingly splendor and his intimate nearness that people see him and go, I'll have that, thank you. So would you settle for bread and dripping when you can see a mighty meaty pizza from Pizza Hut washed down with a Coke ice and a big tub of and bass Which one are you going to go for? It's not going to be the bread and dripping, is it? Oh no. So what we're to do, hold up the spiritual equivalent of a mighty meaty pizza. <laughs> the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? How do we do that then? Finally, we get to it. Two ways I'm going to show you. We're going to turn, if you were, to Deuteronomy chapter 6, and we'll see it in action here. Two ways are through our words and our walk. Our words and our walk. But here we go. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 through to 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on, your, on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Now I want you to see the progression here, okay? A, where it starts, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He's the big picture. He's the thing to set your heart affection on. So, ideally, we want to be, this is what my mum and dad want for me, that they can see the glory and splendour of God. But what's the progression? Where does it go from here? It goes from verse 4, surprisingly, to verse 5 and 6. So once you've established that God is the true God and he's worth setting your heart on, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give to you today are to be upon your heart. Who's he talking to? That's not rhetorical. Who's he talking to at that point? For the Israelites, the kids, the grown-ups. The progression is, God is awesome and worthy of worship. If we're going to get to the kids, it's got to be owned by the parents. It fills their lives. He's saying, look, let this wonder of God, living for him, building your life upon him, let that fill your life. This is not just a hobby that you do on Sunday. This isn't just turning up every now and again. No. Let your whole life be built on who God is. Look at it at the end of verse 6 there. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your heart, on you. It will shape everything you do. So it's, it's impossible to pass a baton on when you haven't actually got the baton in your hand, is it? It's a good thing for us to examine here, isn't it, in our hearts. We can't tell everybody, tell our kids, build your life on Jesus, and then they look around at us and say... Uh, hello? What are you building your life on? And then ends the, the progression on to verse 7 and 9. Seven to, sorry, 7 through to 9. Impress them on your children. A little bit more literally. Teach them diligently. There's supposed to be an impression made. Teach them diligently. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at the home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. You cannot affect a heart change in them. You cannot do that. But you can live it out yourself, verses six and seven. Uh, sorry, five and six, and verses seven to nine, talk about it with them as you go. So one of the two things we can see in there, we're going to do them in the reverse order, it's in the, and there it's it's walk first, then it's words. But let's flip it round. Words and walk. And both of these, there's two, there's, there's two parts to each one, okay? So, under our words, we, we've got to speak. We've got formally and informally. Do you remember last week I was waving these things around? Okay? Kids, big picture Bible. Very good. Uh, mighty acts of God. Very good. This one, I think every Christian ought to have one. It's awesome. And if you insist, you can read it to your kids. But I think this is suited to adults. Not because it's technical, but because it's just awesome. Uh, this was another one, like a little comic with the New Testament. And there's some suggestions. They're ones that we use. There's oodles and oodles of other good stuff that is out there. In the home, 
it says there, on your doorposts, at your gates, not as a classroom, but you've got to formally teach your children, says the Bible here. This is what they're being told. God is speaking and saying, formally teach your children. Formally do it. Organise. Be diligent. You know, where it says a pressure upon them, that's teach them diligently in an ordered and sensible way. This is my encouragement to you. Don't let a day go by where as a family you haven't made the time to sit down and read the Bible together. We don't even do it one day a week at the moment. Well, neither did we to start off with. And gradually over time we learn how to do it. Could I suggest that in the morning, get, set the alarm half an hour earlier, get yourselves up, learn to get them around the table. Sit down. Because remember, we, we had the quote from C.S. Lewis again last week, which I, I haven't got with me. But basically, in the morning, a rush of emotions and desires and intentions fly at us the second our eyes awake. What shall I make today about? And what we need to do is, as those things thunder at us, as they thunder at our kids, we need to put them back in their proper place with God, the supreme hope and thought of the heart. So my encouragement to you is, of course, read the Bible on your own. You're a grown-up. Pray. But have a time where actually you're investing formally into your children. We don't do it perfectly, and it has been quite hard fought. And it's been intimate, there have been times when we haven't been very faithful. But if you would like to come and see an example of what that looks like, I'm offering an open-ended invite to breakfast at our house. Ring us the night before and say, can we come to breakfast and just see what you guys do? And we sit around the table, we take the mick out of each other, we scoff our food, we tell Amy to sit quietly, we tell Emily to zip up, and we open the Bible together. And I teach the kids there to read and to pray. And I think that's what's in mind here. And it was hard, wasn't it? I think to start off with, when we first started doing it, we, we sort of, we'd pray and maybe read a story with the kids just before they went to bed, and we thought, hold on, no, let's start the day the right way. We get up early. Now, you say, I couldn't possibly do that. And yet, I know full well that most of the kids who are represented here, most of the families, manage every now and again to get up and come to the prayer, kids' prayer breakfasts at half seven we do occasionally. So if you can do it on one day, in theory, it could be done all the time, in theory. Yeah, it's a little bit more hard work. So formally, lovingly, opening the scriptures together, get a Bible story, read it through, pray it through, talk it through, and I'll come back to that in just a minute. And so in this one, in words, we're saying that formally we need to teach them. That is, the Bible, them being given a systematic Bible education, taking the Bible and feeding them on it. Bible to them, okay? The second way is informally. And this is in sitting down and opening the Bible with somebody and, and teaching the story through and praying it through together. If that's Bible to them, informally we do it the other way around. And in the busyness of life, and in the comings and goings, and in your walking on the way, you do the them to the Bible. Say, so hold on, see, how does it work? Okay, verse 7 and 8, look. Impress them on your children. Walk, uh, talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Perhaps it's when you're in the car or you're walking up the stairs or you're going around the shops together or when you're watching telly. What you're doing is you are helping them make sense and interpret life. You get them to talk about what they're they're doing in their lives. You get them to weigh up what it is they're seeing. You, you ask them about what it is they're living for, what they're standing on. And as they talk about those things, and you see where your kids are at, you're listening out for ways in which you can just be talking about the goodness of God and his grace. I'm not talking about like in an eh, clunk, clunky gear change, but in a real life. So you're sitting there and you're watching, you're sitting there and you're watching a film with them. And you can see the characters doing good things, and you can read and see, oh, then that character there is living for themselves, and it's seen this way, this way, this way, and this way, and this is how it is ruining them. You can say, you can just start talking to the kid. They can spot this a mile off. You say to them, what's really precious to that character there? And they'll say, oh, they want to look really good and sing in a band. Is that a bad thing? Not really. But what's it doing in their life? Oh, it's making them be really catty to anybody else who might be a threat to them. And immediately you're talking to them and helping them to understand how hearts tick and how they work. And say, so, well, okay, well, what's the difference for us then? Okay, well, how does knowing Jesus make that different for us? What do we need to remember? Well, I'm already in. I don't have to be in a band to be in. I'm in because Jesus has brought me in. 
So I can play in a band and enjoy it, but I don't need to be nasty to others to protect it because Jesus has declared me in. And kids can get that. And all you're doing is you're, you're doing it informally along the way. Every day, their hearts will be pursuing values, their desires will be flying at them at a million miles per hour. They want life and they want to make sense of life. Kids are like little sponges. It's all, all, uh, awesome. Um, we were, I think the management people, they do, you do a management course and they have these four categories of where you are at as a person. Okay? Consciously, sorry, unconsciously incompetent. Consciously incompetent. Unconsciously competent and consciously competent. What does that all that mean? I'll tell you. There are some people who are rubbish at doing it but don't know it. There are some people who are rubbish at doing it but they know they're no good at doing it. So they've got a bit more hope. There are some people who are good at doing it but they just don't know why and how they do it well. And there are some people who are good at doing it and they know why they're doing it. Okay? Kids are in the, they're in the, the category, the second one down. They're no good at making sense of life, but they know they're no good at making sense of life, so they're always scratching around for somebody to help them make sense of it, aren't they? Which ones are adults, according to the Bible, more likely? You see, kids have got a measure of humility. They're not at that age where they feel they've got to prove themselves super-duper. Most of us, lot, when it comes to making sense of life, are rubbish at doing it, but we don't realise we're rubbish at doing it. We've got pride and arrogance in our lives. Kids, when they're young, they're great because they come to you looking for somebody to help them make sense of why they don't know where they're going. And we've got to make the most of that informally. Who are our kids? Well, they're, they're helpless in who they are. They are little sinners, but they realise that there's a, mi- a mismatch. So informally, what do we do? We try to get the gospel into their hearts. We try to help them make sense of what they're facing. So can I give you the trick for doing this? It's so simple. Here is the killer trick. This is also the killer trick to use with adults as well. If you're trying to help them understand who Jesus is, if you're talking to them, if you're in a conversation, here is the killer trick. You stick with this and it'll work every time. You have two ears and one mouth. Use it accordingly. You have two ears, one mouth. Use it accordingly. Instead of trying to spend all our time trying to tell, tell them something, spend more time listening to what they're, where they're at. So ask them good questions. Ask them about their day. Ask them how they're getting on. What did they make of that? Why did they respond? Listen, listen. Don't be too quick to jump in and tell them, oh, you should have done that. Listen to what's going on on the inside of them. And then, when you do speak, speak words of truth and God's words. But show them who Jesus is. Use two ears and one mouth. So let me give you an example from our family. Please, I would appreciate you not speaking to... When I use my kids as examples, sometimes they're not the hero, but A, I don't want to elevate them as if, uh, as if they've cracked it. B, I don't want them to feel as if they've got to be something they're not. So please don't talk to my kids about this. But yesterday, Becky, she's, she's had, she has an increasing anger problem. Um, she's, she's quite a gifted little girl. She's very used to being able to do things straight off. So the second that she comes to something where she can't do it straight away, um, by her own words, she, uh, you know, she just gets really upset. Tears start coming down. And I said to her, yes, I said, look, this is getting worse and worse. Tell me what's going on. So why do you get angry? Well, I get angry because I can't do it straight away. Why do you get angry? Well, it makes me feel funny not being able to do it. It makes me feel worried. I, I, I get all uptight. I worry that if I can't do it, then I won't be good enough. And we talk about this a little bit more and a little bit like that. And so I'm listening to it. Now, my instinct is when I'm doing something with her and she, and she starts to cry like that, what's my instinct? What do I want to do? Oh, stop it, stop saying Look up. Sort it out. I'm doing something for you. Why are you crying? That's my natural instinct. So for me to slow down and sit and ask, start asking her about it is against the grain, okay? Because naturally I would just <laughs> sort out your behaviour. But when I start to drill a little bit deeper, she's worried that when she can't do something straight away, it's just a little sign that she's a bit lost. She's not in control of her world and it frightens her. So we sat down and said, well, what do we need? What do we really need? Then we came out to the point where she said, you know, I need to know I'm not lost. So what do you think I said to her? What would you have said? Come give me a suggestion. 
I'm not suggesting it's the gold answer. I'm just what would you have said when you've got a little child who's who's tearful when she can't do something because she's worried it would mean that she's lost and she's out of control. What should I have told her? I'm sorry, self out with your child. Come on, it's tough out there. You know, if you're getting confounded by the fact that you can't immediately play that new chord on your guitar, I'm telling you, when you face some real difficulties, you're going to be stuffed. Is that what I told her? Come on, what should I tell her? You never lost her, that's right. Well, what, we came up with just a little phrase for her to repeat whenever she feels herself getting tense. And we sat down and we prayed about it, and this was it. I was lost, but Jesus found me. And if that becomes a big thing in your life, then the tears will become less and less, won't they? You need to live, Becky. I was lost, but Jesus found me. So whatever I'm facing is not as big as that truth. I want to live by that truth. you see that? I was lost, but Jesus found me. And we sat, we prayed, and she said, sorry for making these things bigger. Sorry to the Lord for making these things bigger than they really are. And she went away and said, well, what next time you feel yourself tense or a bit worried or tearful that you can't do something straight away, what are you going to say to yourself? I was lost, but Jesus found me. So informally, we teach them God's word. Look for opportunities to do that. It's what we need as well, isn't it? By the way, that's the way that we're supposed to minister one to another, as well as the children. You know that. So if somebody's asking you questions about how you're getting on and what you're facing, it's because they love you and they want you to be able to know that you're equivalent of, well, you were lost but Jesus found you. Let's very quickly move on to the second one. Walk. Okay, you've seen here our words. We teach formally and we teach informally as much as we can. Uh, walk. Splits into two again. Sinners imitating Jesus and sinners in need of Jesus. So, this is so important, and I'll tell you why. Okay, let's go back to 6 verse 6. You can see it there. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your heart, speaking to the grown-ups, speaking to the people who are to be the teachers, people, uh, those who are to be ministering God's grace and God's love outwardly. Now, why is this particularly important for families? Okay, I'll tell you why. Because all our kids are a little bit like Toto the dog in The Wizard of Oz. Can you remember what Toto the dog does at the end? Here they are, there's this great and mighty, powerful Wizard of Oz. You've seen the film, or you've read the book. The great and mighty Oz, green smoke, all of this, and, and Tin Man and Dorothy, they're all frightened back there. What does Toto go and do? He sniffs something. And what does he do? That's it. He tosses over to the curtain, pulls back the curtain, and shows the phony baloney. Kids are brilliant little totos. You can be saying all this grand and mighty stuff and oh, they'll sniff you a mile away. They'll be able to spot what you're like. So if you say you, you stand on the glory and the wonder of God and your hope is in Him and you know that all things are under His control and yet you're complaining and moaning as you get out of bed, oh, why well, my kids are so slow, as you stand making the breakfast, oh, dear me, it's gone out of date, this is no good. If you're always complaining, if that's, then what are they going to be like? Hey, they'll sniff you're not living for the glory of God. But guess what? They'll become complainers too. If you're somebody who flies off the handle and is quick to sort of, well, quick to speak and slow to think, it's supposed to be quick to think and slow to speak. It's the way it's supposed to be. But you're the other way around. If you're like, guess what they're going to be with all their mates? Oh, yes. So they're very good at smelling phony baloney. So what have we got to do? And there's a difficult tension. I want to make sure we get this. We've got to be sinners who are trying to imitate Jesus. What we're actually saying is we should own this. We, we want to own living for the glory of God and Him alone. Um, and what is He like primarily? What is the big four-letter word that primarily describes what God is like? Think uh, first epistle of John. God is love. Okay, that's the primary thing. God is love. He is compassion. He is grace. He is self-giving. And love is sacrificing. All genuine love is sacrificing. So what are we expecting? That if we're to be showing Jesus to our kids, what do we primarily have, primarily have to be marked by? Love. If we're to be showing Jesus to other people, what are we supposed to be marked by? If we have been near God, 
We will be loving. Now, as I say, all love is sacrificial. And if you're a parent, you're already, in some sense, showing that. Because all love is sacrificial. It means giving. You get this wonderful bundle of love, come home from uh, the hospital. For it to live, in some way, your life has to die. Okay? So the last thing that John and Sarah did when they brought little Rosa back from the hospital was leave her on the step and go back to watching Home and Away. No, they got busy. Little Rosa had to be fed, needed nappies, needed changing, needed trips to the doctors, needed injection, needed oodles and oodles of time, at the time when it wasn't convenient, so you didn't get any sleep. So there's a sense in which for Rosa to live, there was a, a death. And it goes on through childhood, doesn't it? As the kids get a little bit older, okay, you want to be reading interesting books, and you want to be having grown-up and civilised conversations. But if you're a parent, what do you find yourself doing? Reading little nursery rhymes and talking to your kid, go, 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 go. Okay? You have a sacrifice. It, it, it swaps, doesn't it? It's, it's your life for theirs. In fact, you know, if you want to civilise... No, how old do you, Kev? 23, you'll do, okay? Kids don't get interesting until they're 25. Poor Brenda. She still hasn't had a word of common sense and a worthwhile conversation with Kev. She's got to wait another two years. Why? Does she talk to you? Oh, no, she doesn't. Okay, okay. My hope was that she did. She does talk to you, because I've seen her do it. Kev, sort it out. Yeah. Why? You give yourself, don't you? That's what love is marked by. So you go without so that they can have. But listen, Christian love is slightly different. Because... There's another added element. You see, it's easy to do that, to give your life for theirs, when they love you and are compliant. But Jesus' love is greater than that. Who does he give his love to? And when is his love most fully seen? It's when it is poured out on those who are his enemies. That's real sacrificial love. It's easy to love when they're well behaved. But how do you respond to them when they abuse you and are ungrateful, when they are difficult, when they are defiant, when they don't go along with your plans and when they're totally inconsiderate of everything you do for them? And then we remember the words of Jesus that says, while they were still sinners, Christ died for us. Do you get the difference? My life for yours. And because Jesus said to you and me, and because he died and gave himself in that way, you and I can now live, have the power to live my life for others. So every day, you and me will be communicating very loudly to the people around us or to our children something about Jesus. The only question we need to ask ourselves is, what is it we're communicating? Are we communicating that Jesus is scary, unapproachable, erratic, impatient, unkind, and very, 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 very fast to get angry? Or are we communicating to our kids that Jesus Christ is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, compassionate even to those who don't deserve it? Me and Jane were talking about yesterday, I don't know why the conversation came up, we were just talking about the fact that our kids are getting older and and the, the fear that we have about them rebelling. And we were saying, we were just saying to each other, well how can we let them know that even if they've made really bad decisions and they mess up their lives as teenagers, that they, they can come and talk to us about it. And we basically concluded that we can't. We can't tell them that, because talk is cheap. We need to spend the next 15 years showing them that. Do you understand that? We've got to show it. Why didn't you come to me when you had that problem? They weren't the problem if they couldn't come. It was because for 15 years we taught them that actually we're inapproachable and they're only loved when they perform and when they do the right thing. So what are we to do? Well, we're to introduce and imitate Jesus. But then there's this last one. I I realise time is nearly gone, but I I want to work on this because I think this this is very important that we get this. If we're directly teaching them by imitating Jesus, we indirectly teach them by showing them that we are sinners in need of Jesus' grace. Now this is so important, okay? We need to demonstrate to our children, or if you're trying to win somebody else with the gospel, it's the same, or it's what you need to see from your fellow church brothers and sisters, not 
presenting them, look, aren't we brilliant and that's why Jesus accepts us? No, we currently, though we're seeking to live by, like Jesus, we fail and we are the recipients of divine grace. When we do that, we show them that Jesus is for rebels, for failures, and they have nothing to offer. So yeah, this is so important. We need to ask questions like, how, how do we actually help them to see that we are sinners without encouraging them to sin? Because we have this silly idea, don't we, that, that actually if we show our kids that we are perfect, then they'll use that as license and excuse to be little terrors. My mum and dad did it, so therefore I can do it. That's what we have, that idea. So it's like this, it's this difficult tension, isn't it? So how is it we do it? Answer, repentance. We have to be transparent with our kids. They have to be able to see the fact that we, that we renounce sin, we expose it, we say, look, it's not okay, and we need a saviour to deliver us from that. Now, for you and me, we find it easy to confess our sin to God for some reason. But we find it really difficult to confess our sin to other people, don't we? Which is a rather a bit sick, really. Is that, you know, here is God, the great and awesome, wonderful judge, who sees the thoughts and intentions of our hearts, sees us through and through, knows what we're really like underneath, and we don't mind quietly saying, I'm sorry to him. But the idea that we tell somebody here, now what does that reveal about what we fear most? I've told you about it, sometimes you, know, you wake up in the middle of the night and, you, and you, you're dead stressed. You're thinking of a time when you either said something wrong or you embarrassed yourself and no matter how hard you can, it sort of like revisits on you, revisits and you play the scene over in your mind and you're like, oh dear, it's terrible. Oh dear, I feel so ashamed. Why did I ever say that? Why did I ever do that? I've never woken up in the middle of the night worrying about that when it comes to something that I've done to God. Could it be that I fear other people's opinions more than I fear God? Now our kids need to see that we fear God the most and that we can go to him and declare our failures and know that we can repent. When repentance doesn't mean I feel sorry. Repentance means saying, look, that is not the way to go. It is against God's goodness. It is not finding our hope and our joy in him. It is living an empty way of life that only ever ends up in brokenness. So we can either repent in front of our kids or else what we can do is try and hide our sin. Now, if they're a little bit like Toto, it's only going to be a matter of time before they see it. So perhaps you're somebody here who tries to work off their sin. You mess up, and so you work a little bit harder, you pray a little bit more, you, you, you fail your kids, so you take them out for a treat. You do something to atone and, and be a saviour. You, you, know, you, you work off your sin. Perhaps you hide it. Deny it. No, didn't do it. Perhaps, and this is the most common one for parents, perhaps you blame shift. Oh, it's because I'm tired. It's because I'm tired. You know. Well, if you hadn't behaved like that to your little sister, I never would have done that. Well, if the bus hadn't been late. And what you do is you blame shift because of your bad attitudes. And if it's always doing that, and if you're always saying it's somebody else's fault, then what's that going to teach them about how much they need a saviour? Oh, I do need a saviour but only a little bit, because really it's somebody else's fault. See, our kids spot our self-justification, our excuse-making, our blame-shifting, and then they start to do it themselves. So the question that you and I need to ask ourselves is, how do we deal with our sins? Because the way we deal with our sin will actually be the way that our kids deal with their sin. So if you are somebody who denies it, that there's a problem and denies there's anything wrong with some of your actions, then effectively you'll be communicating to them that we don't really need a saviour. We just need to be smartened up on the outside. If you blame shift, then effectively you'll be teaching your kids that you can bargain with God and you don't really need Jesus. If you try and work it off, then effectively you're saying that, well, Jesus isn't enough. I need Jesus to forgive my sin, but I need to work very hard as well. And that's when I'm acceptable and okay. You see, we need to be teaching our kids that we are sinners in need of grace. Sometimes we do the polar opposite. Sometimes what we do is we become very, very, very hard on sin. And very bad on hard and maybe so much so that, well, they, they'll flip the other way. They'll do the polar opposite and say, oh, it doesn't matter. Because they can't take that kind of battering anymore. And this is the worst case, okay? If you don't take responsibility for your sin against your kids, so... 
start off with just talking about generally the way we behave towards our children, but more specifically, when you've done something against them, when you haven't looked, at them, looked after them as you should, if we don't take responsibility for our sins against our kids, we will subtly teach them that we don't sin. If you never ask for forgiveness, it teaches that you don't need a saviour. Or that you don't sin. And because they're toto, one day they'll spot that you do, and then they will think you're either a hypocrite, or that Jesus Christ is a fake and they'll hate Jesus. So confess your sins to your kids. Can I tell you the best way to do it? It's as you're reading the Bible in the morning together. So what do we do? When we're opening the Bible together in the mornings, we're working through the Gospel stories and we're reading it, and we say, oh, well, what is it that they're doing in a way that shows they need a saviour? In that story. And it'll come out, and the kids will spot it, and say, oh, do you think we do anything like that? Do you do anything like that? And they'll say, oh, yeah, maybe I do do that. Maybe it comes out there, that's the way I treat people, or that's what I don't do, because... And I'll say, well, what about mummy and daddy? Can you say mummy and daddy? And then they really get going. And do it with the Bible open, with a spirit of openness. So when, when, when Becky, another example of Becky, when Becky came down a couple of weeks ago, and she had got angry, I was in the middle of doing something, I was very busy. She had got angry with little Emily, and because she was angry with little Emily, Emily was getting in the way of her plans, she was trying to do something smart to me, and Emily was messing around with her. Becky, by her own admission, she'd been sent down by Jane to tell me this, had booted Emily in the face. Now I was busy doing something very, very important. And I was filled with a sense of frustration that my time was being messed with and b a sense of anger that one of my daughters had just been kicked in the face. And what did I do? I said, Becky, go and sit over there. Quickly, sit over there. I went away and I carried on doing what I was doing for half a minute. When I went back to Becky and I said, Becky, do you know why I asked you to go and sit, sit over there? She said, because I'm in trouble? No, because I am. Because when you came down there, do you know what I wanted to do? I don't know why I wanted to do it, but it filled me up. I would have done it if I hadn't told you to sit over there. Do you know what I wanted to do? I wanted to kick you in the face. It's horrible that I'm a dad. But I wanted to kick her in the face. How dare you interrupt my time? I did exactly what Becky did at first. And so what we did was we sat down and I said, you're in trouble, you've done wrong, you shouldn't have done it, you're going to get a smack. But I want you to know that I'm just as wicked and I only need to pray for me. We both need a saviour, don't we? And she was like, yeah. And we sat there and she prayed for me and I prayed for her. And by me confessing my sin to her, has that made her want to, oh, I can do it now? No, it's made her feel as if she's got an ally. She knows that we're both fallen and broken and we both need a saviour. And that's what your kids need to see from you in whatever way it is that you do it, whether it's over the Bible in the morning, whether it's an instinct like that, a time like that. They need to see that God is glorious and he's all that we need. They need to see that he is great and that he does change lives and he's wonderfully loving and they need to say, see that we are sinners who are purely and only saved by grace. So I realise I've gone past my time. We need, by our words, to show Jesus. We need, in our walk, to lift him up and show his all-sufficiency. Where does that leave us now? I'm guessing it leaves us consciously incompetent again and feeling old and I'm not up to this task. What can I possibly do? answer, cry out to God and say, will you be the biggest thing in my life? It goes back to verses, um, it goes back to verses 5 and 6. It goes back there, I want these things on my heart. Lord, I cannot do it on my own. We can't win our kids. We can't win our friends. We cannot build up people within the church as much as we wish we could. We can't win that, but we can hold up Jesus as all we need through a life of repentance, a life of dependence, constantly turning our hearts to him, to the only one who is worth living for, the one who is glorious and his manifold wisdom and his awesome grace. Now, if this material in any way has found you out, as it has me, then can I tell you, the cross is the place we need to focus. 
And I, for some reason, thought that this would take 25 minutes so that we'd be able to spend more time there. So I have a choice now. I can either take us straight to the table service and leave the poor little lovelies out there going bonkers, or else we can give this the time that it demands and do that next week. And I think, on reflection, we're going to do that. But perhaps if you're sitting here thinking, I've failed miserably in this and I'm nowhere near, then you please need to remember that this table service is where you need to go. It's what the table is there for. It's for weak people who don't look to Jesus and haven't shown him off and are belittling him and he says, my grace is sufficient for you. It answers for us, what does God want for me now? Just like we're asking that question, this is what my parents want for me. What does God want for me now? And the answer is, whoever you are, whatever you're doing, right here and now, is he wants you to build your life on that. Come to him for forgiveness, get his grace, and start living a life glorifying him again. So we're going to end there. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing one song, and then we're going to have the kids come back in there, come back in here like this, and we're going to try and love them and be the parents that Jesus would be to them. And we're going to try and support and encourage one another when we fail, because fail we do. And we're going to do it in the confidence that when we step out in faith to try and serve him, he will meet us at our point of need. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are all we need for life. Please help us to build our lives upon you, with you at the very centre filling all of our horizon. Please, Lord, help us to enjoy all your good gifts without worshipping them. Please, Lord, draw our hearts near to you. Please, Lord, put around us those people who will show us the beauty and the excellencies of Jesus, that we may have expelled out of us any desire to go to empty pots that are cracked and dry. We pray, O Lord, that we would build our life on you, and we pray, O Lord, that you would use us to hold up Jesus and his wonderful grace in the power of your spirit to other people. Help us to do it, Lord, through our words, with the Bible open and in formal conversations. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would help us to do it through us imitating Jesus and showing that we're sinners in need of his grace. We pray for those wonderful little lives out there who need to hear of Jesus and see him. We pray, O oh Lord, that they would be the next generation who stands for him and they wouldn't demonstrate the stubbornness and hard-heartedness of the, of the generation that went before. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would deal in mercy with them and with us. So please, Lord, come near and be our all and be our everything. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to stand and sing now. Uh, Chris, we're going to have to kick back a few because the one that we're going to do is... Um, hold on, where are we? Which one? Do, hold on, we did... Is that the one we're doing now? Yeah. We're going to do When I Was Lost, You Came and Rescued Me.